end of, or the last paragraph of chapter 2 and work through chapter 3. This is a, a pivotal point in the narrative of, of Esther, in the whole story. This, this is a, a central piece, and understanding this one will help us understand the rest of the book uh, in, 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 in an even richer, deeper way. So let's pray and see if the Lord will send his spirit to us and, and give us help to understand and to enjoy his, his word and, and him. Father, we are grateful for your word. Thank you that you've given us this full revelation of yourself. Thank you that even in the, the pages of Esther, where your name is not named, uh, we see your activity, we see your person uh, in, in every scene. Uh, and we pray that you would, would use this to train us, to train our mind, to train the way that we think, to look at the world and to see your, your mighty hand all around us, to see evidence of your, of your ongoing government, government of the whole world. And we pray that as we consider your providential rule over all things, that we will eagerly submit ourselves to you through Christ, uh, eager to grow in holiness, eager to grow in our, our devotion to you. We thank you for this, this great book that you've given to us to study, and we pray that your people will be greatly profited as we encounter the mind of the true and living God. Amen. If this were, <clears throat> if I were preaching this text, I would, I would entitle it Seeing in the Darkness. There's this theme of darkness that goes through Esther chapter 3. We, we have this kind of old saying that providence is not its own interpreter. As we did the introduction some weeks ago to the book of Esther, one of the things I pointed out was that even though God's name isn't mentioned, and even though there is no specific miracle that is attributed directly to God, we can see his rule and governance over all things. We know he is there behind the scenes, as it were, and we can see that because the coincidences just pile up to such a degree that there is no explanation other than the divine hand at work. John Flavel, the, the Puritan, said, Providence is like a Hebrew word. It's only understood when read backwards. I think it's a really good way to think about that. We, we know this. We even know in our common uh, English expression, hindsight is twenty twenty. And what we mean by that is we see more clearly behind us what has happened. Not only our own actions, but for the Christian, we ought to see the hand of God looking backwards. We may not see it in the moment. When, when things happen to us, we may not see in the very moment what God is doing, but as time unfolds and we see more and more the purposes of God, it may be that we look back at yesterday or a year ago or 10 years ago and say, see, that was a turning point. And God did something then that I didn't see, and yet now I'm seeing how that fruit is coming into full measure. So let's look at the text together. I'm going to read from verse 19 of chapter 2, down through the end of chapter 3, and we're introduced to Haman. And we had our musicians practicing just a minute ago, and, and if they were to come back up and do a soundtrack for us, this, this would have to be a dark, foreboding kind of, of intro to get Haman's character really in our mind correctly. Well, let's look first. We notice in this last paragraph of chapter 19 that providence works before we can even see it. That's our first, first observation is providence is at work even before or even when we don't see it. Let's look at verse 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, 
Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king, in the name of Mordecai, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamaditha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put in put it into the king's treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamaditha, and the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps, and to the governors over all the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent out by couriers to all the king's provinces, and instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So we notice in the first place that providence works before we can see it. There's this, this scene here at the end of chapter 2 
that leads us into, sort of introduces what goes on in chapter 3 and helps us understand how this fits into the overall narrative. Because we're also going to notice that the nature of worldly conflict is always deeper than what we can see. See, there's this theme of darkness that runs through here. In the first place, there's providence going on that we can't see. Then there's also, within the, the realm of human conflicts and, and, and events and wars, there is a, there's a cosmic conflict that we can't see. And then lastly, there's a victory coming. There's a victory already scheduled and already put in stone, but we can't see it yet. <clears throat> so providence works before we see. Look at, at the, there at the end of chapter 2. Here's this scene. We're given very little information. Mordecai finds out about a conspiracy to kill King Ahasuerus. Welcome. We're in, in Esther, the end of chapter 2 and end of chapter 3. So at the end, right here, Mordecai is, is, is found out about this plot from two of the eunuchs. These are the ones who are doorkeepers in the king's palace. So they have immediate direct access to him. So this is, this is a real threat. Mordecai, we're not told, how does Mordecai find out about this? Don't know. He said, it said that he was sitting at the king's gate, which was, which was an idiomatic expression. It would, it would be kind of like us saying that a judge sits at the bench doesn't mean he's actually literally on a bench. It, it's, it's, a, it's a term that refers to his office. So to sit at the king's gate means that he was on staff in some capacity in the, the, the office, the magistracy of King Ahasuerus. And in his capacity there, somehow, he either overhears or learns about this plot to kill, um, kill Ahasuerus. But none of the questions that come to our mind get answered here by the narrator. How does he find out about this? How does he get the information to Esther? How is it that the king verifies that these things are true? The men were, it was investigated, and the men were, were hanged as a result of that. We're not told any of that. And, and the main point is because we want to see that God's most wise and most just providence was already at work to deliver his people, even before his people were aware of it. Now, see, we have the benefit because, number one, we know how the story ends. But number two, we have a narrator. The Holy Spirit, through the, narr the human narrator, is telling us sort of what's behind the scenes. But Mordecai and Esther don't know this. In fact, it's possible, in fact, it's likely that Mordecai didn't even know that the king took real, any real notice in this. We're told that this, the, the king ordered that this event was recorded in the book of his chronicles, in his own presence. The king personally wanted to make sure this was written down so that no one forgot. And yet, Mordecai was not instantly rewarded. Why not? Well, we're not told that directly. But it's almost as if God has placed in here, among the enemies of his people, a time bomb. And the fuse has now been lit. Providence has lit the fuse. So that's what we're, we're, we're supposed to see, is that things are happening behind the scenes by the divine hand even before God's people were aware of what's taking place. Now, keep in mind, we don't know exactly the time frame when it was that Mordecai comes to know of, of this plot. But we are given some time frame with respect to when Haman begins his own plot. In verse 7 of chapter 3, we're told in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus. Now, if you look back... At chapter 2, when 
Esther is being prepared to go in to the king. Uh, we're told that it was the it was the seventh year. Almost five years have passed. Almost five years have passed. We don't know exactly when in that five-year period Mordecai's discovery of the plot took place. But Providence knows. Providence knew all along what was going to take place. God knew of the danger his people were in. He was not going to be caught unaware. And indeed, he had already made full preparation for the rescue of his people. It's, it's remarkable. This is Esther sort of, of, the narrator here, sort of pulls back the curtain and shows us as, as frightening as the events of chapter 3 must have been to the Jews. We get to see behind the veil, behind the curtain, and see, yes, but providence is working here. God is on the scene. He's not going to allow his people to be destroyed. He is already preparing his people to be rescued, even from, from a murderous, genocidal holocaust plotted at the very highest levels of civil government. Again, we don't have to really stretch or grasp to find contemporary relevance for these things, do we? I mean, here is a plot against God's people at the very highest level of the most powerful government in the world. And it just so happens that one of God's people happens to be in a place of authority, some sort of even maybe a clerical position in the king's house, and learns about this plot, and God causes that to be written down in the permanent record of the Persian Empire. We're not going to see the usefulness of that just yet, but it's going to pay off big time for the Jews. So this paragraph leaves another question unanswered, though, at least for the time. Why wasn't Mordecai rewarded? And the answer is because God's wise plan involved the reward coming at a time that was necessary for the fulfillment of God's purposes. It wasn't useful for God's purposes for Mordecai to be rewarded just in this moment. It would be useful for him to be rewarded later on. And, and the fact remains true for us, doesn't it? God has promised us a reward. How often do we think that the wicked are getting away with something? How, long do, how often do we look around the world and think they're winning? They, they've got the power, they've got the strength, they've got the numbers, they've got the financial resources. I mean, Haman offers an obscene amount of money to fund this extermination campaign. How often do we think that somehow God has not rewarded our, our good deeds or our good works? And the last paragraph here in Esther chapter 2 helps to remind us that God always keeps a record of his people's deeds. He always keeps a record of his people's deeds. All that we have done for the glory of God and for his, the praise of his name is recorded in the heavenly ledger. Far more significant than being recorded in King Ahasuerus' chronicles is that the things that God's people do in faith for his glory and honor are recorded in the pages of heaven in the very presence of the true and living king. And all that we have done on behalf of God's people, whether we're even aware of it or not, is written down in the chronicles of the king of all of creation. That ought to encourage us. There are times when we can think like Elijah did, sitting under the tree, find yourself there, thinking, Lord, I'm the only one. I'm the only faithful one left. Everyone else has gone astray. Everyone else is, I mean, and, and my works aren't even being noted or paid attention to. 
And the Lord says, no, don't, don't think that way. All that you've done for me in faith is being recorded in heaven. And, and that will all be declared on the day of judgment. Matthew Henry said, no step is yet taken towards Haman's design of the Jews' destruction, but several steps are taken towards God's design of their deliverance. The whole matter was recorded in the king's journals with a particular remark that Mordecai was the man who discovered the treason. He was not rewarded presently, but a book of remembrance was rewritten. Thus, with respect to those who serve Christ, though their recompense is adjourned till the resurrection of the just, yet an account is kept of their work of faith and labor of love, which God is not unrighteous to forget. And that's exactly what the apostle to the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 6, verse 10, For God is not unrighteous so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name, in having ministered and continuing to minister to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not become dull, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So the first lesson we learn from, from this dark section of Esther, uh, uh, and, and we have to, in a sense, allow ourselves to enter into the darkness. We have the advantage of a sight that the characters about which we read didn't have. We, we, we have a, an insight, we have a light, we have, number one, we have the narrator telling us what's going on behind the scenes, but also we have a light in Christ, seeing that all these things have been fulfilled. They didn't have. And so we, we, we want to have a sense of, of that darkness in order to really f- appreciate what God is doing behind the scenes. Providence is at work before we could even see God's mighty hand. But then the second thing that we see with respect to Haman Haman points us, and the nature of the conflict with Haman and his deception and manipulation points us to this reality. The nature of worldly conflict is always deeper than what we can see. There's always more going on spiritually, cosmically, than than we can discern. The nature of worldly conflict is always deeper. It's more profound. It's more substantial than we can see. Now, every great story has to have a compelling and interesting villain, right? Every great story has a, has a compelling victim. And we're introduced, or not villain, a vic, villain, not victim. Get my tongue tied up. And here, we're introduced to Esther's villain, the, the, the villain of all of the Jews, a man named Haman. Now, notice something important. When Haman is introduced in, chapter, in, in verse 1, He's referred to as Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. And then again, when we meet, we see him again in verse 10, the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. And throughout the book of Esther, Haman is referred to in this same way. Haman the Agagite. In chapter 8, verse 3, Uh, Esther spoke again to the king, and she fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite. Then in verse 5, and she said, If it pleases the king, and if I found favor in your sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, son of Hamadatha. And then again in chapter 9, For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. Now, why is it, do you think, 
that the narrator wants us, really presses this in, wants us to know that Haman is an Agagite. Why is that important? Well, obviously, it's important because he's repeating it over and over again. But is this just because he wants us to know his, his heritage or his lineage? Why, why is that significant? Well, it's because the Holy Spirit, through our narrator, wants us to know that what's happening to the Jews is something that's far deeper and more substantial than what it looks like on the surface. This is a conflict with both historical significance, but also future hope. Turn with me back to, to 1 Samuel. You know, Esther is the last of the narrative portions, the historical narrative portions of the Old Testament. 1 Samuel is kind of right in the middle of, of the flow of God's historical work among his people. And in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, this is where Saul has been given an order by, by the Lord to, to, to go up against the Amalekites and then to devote them to destruction, everything. Every man and woman and child, every beast of the field, all of their livestock is to be destroyed. That's God's order. Chapter 15, verse 1, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted that Amal- I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. This is God's divine justice. Now, what did Saul do? Look at verse 7. Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted the destruction, or devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves. And, of course, there's this famous scene when, when shortly after this, Samuel comes to Saul and says, why didn't you do what the Lord said? And Saul says, oh, I did. I, I, I did everything the Lord said. And Samuel says, what is this bleeding of sheep that I'm hearing then? So Saul did not do what God commanded him to do to destroy Agag. Haman, the narrator wants us to know, is an Agagite. He is a son of the king of the Amalekites that God devoted to destruction generations earlier. So in other words, Haman shouldn't even be here. And yet here he is, in God's providence, waging war against God's people. Now, do you remember what tribe Mordecai and Esther are from? Remember what tribe? Benjamin. They they were told in chapter 2 they are Benjaminites. Well, Saul was a Benjaminite. So there was a, historically, there was a Benjaminite who was supposed to destroy King Agag. And he didn't. Now, King Agag was destroyed. He was killed by Samuel himself. But the Benjaminite didn't do it. Well, now we have, in a sense, a recapitulation of that event. But now we're going to see, in God's special care and providence, the, the Benjaminites, Mordecai and Esther, will destroy the Agagite. So what this tells us is that what's going on behind the scenes is always bigger than what we can see. 
there, there, is, there is a battle here, and this, this battle points us to something. It points us to the battle of God's people, the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. It points us to this, this battle of the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness. And what it's reminding us is that always, in every case, God is at work behind the scenes in ways that we don't see. That The conflict is bigger than what we can see, but so is God's deliverance. So is God's providential rule. Incidentally, Haman's lineage, <clears throat> understanding that Haman is an Agagite, helps us later on when Haman is killed, but then Esther specifically goes to the king and asks, can we also kill all ten of his sons? Why is that just? Because they were Agagites. They should already have been dead. They were already under the judgment of God. So it helps us to understand why that happened the way it happened. It wasn't merely vengeance on the part of Esther and the Jews. This was divine justice. Justice that perhaps was delayed, but was never impotent. And this is always the case when the church of Jesus Christ faces hardship, when the church faces persecution in any, any place, in any age. It's always a consequence of the same age-old battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, between the kingdom of God and the dominion of Satan. And what's going on here with, with Haman, the Agagite, helps us to, helps us to, to tune our, our, our thinking, to train our eyes to see the conflict's always bigger than what we can see on the surface. Or to use Paul's words, we battle not against flesh and blood, but against unseen powers. Many times in the moment that history is unfolding, in our, our present moment, is no exception. God's people uh, may not see, in fact, many times cannot see the larger battle that's taking place, but, but, we, but we do place our trust in the fact that God does see all things. And not only does he see all things, but he's governing all things from the least to the greatest, even to the point where Mordecai ends up getting an official job within the king's court. God ruled and governed that. The fact that, that one of these two eunuchs was perhaps careless in describing the plot and Mordecai overheard. By whatever circumstances, Mordecai came to know of the plot. God had ordered and governed all those things in advance. The other important, important point to remember, and I alluded to this already, is that we, we are also not under the same light that Esther and Mordecai were under and the rest of the Jews. For us, there's a far greater light that has shone upon us. There's a far greater light that has shone. The eternal light of God has come into the world. We have the ability by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and by his indwelling spirit to see the world in a way that they could not see, to discern the nature of the conflicts around us in a much greater manner than Mordecai and Esther could do. So not only do we have the benefit of, of the divine narrator telling us what's going on behind the scenes, but we live in, in a time of much greater light. We, we understand the, the master plan of God to, to redeem all of his people in all places and all times by the coming of his own son. So the nature of worldly conflict is always deeper. It's always greater. It's always more significant than what we can see on the surface. But the seed of the woman has already come. The seed of the woman has already crushed the serpent's head. So Haman, in chapter 3, 
when, when King Ahasuerus is promoting him and exalting him, and it seems as if he's winning, Haman is already a dead duck. Haman is already a man devoted to destruction, and he doesn't even know it. And his own pride, his own arrogance is going to be the very noose by which he's hung. But there's one, one last observation. Is that we wait upon a victory not yet seen. So again, this theme of darkness here in the chapter. The, the Jews were unable to see the hand of providence in, in the moment. Uh, Haman was unable to see what was actually waiting for him just around the corner. The people of God were not able to see what the, this, the greater scope of this battle, the greater significance of what was going on. This seemed like it just was one random but very prominent, very powerful public official who happens to be opposing them on personal reasons. That's what the conflict looked like. But it was far greater than that, wasn't it? We already know how the story of Esther turns out. I mean, that, that we have the... I hope I'm not spoiling anything for you. I think you've all read the story. You know how it ends. But, but use your sanctified imagination for a moment. Pretend you don't know how it ends. Pretend you don't know what, what begins to happen in chapter 4 and 5 and onward. Pretend you're living right where Esther and Mordecai live in chapter 3. And, and let yourself feel the weight in real time of what's happening here. Mordecai does the right thing, and he's not rewarded. Haman is, is promoted to second in all of the kingdom, who has great wealth. He has significant power in, in both his, his appointed position and his own financial resources. And now, because of a personal beef with Mordecai, he wants not only to kill Mordecai, but the, he wants to take on a, a, a campaign of ethnic cleansing. This is nothing short of a holocaust. And, and an order goes out, an, an irreversible Persian order goes out to all the provinces that exactly 11 months from now, every Jew, man, woman, boy, and girl, will be killed. The notice has been sent out to every police department, every sheriff's department, every local, county, state, law enforcement agency in the entire nation, and said, circle this date in blood red on the calendar. This is the day all the Jews die. And it's an irreversible decree. Haman's got all the resources to carry this out. And, and imagine what that is like in that very moment. It's hopeless. The, the chapter ends with the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. I mean, is, is there a more hopeless scene from the perspective of the Jews, and a more is there a more arrogant scene on behalf of Haman? I mean, he sits down with the king to have a beer and to celebrate. This is what we're doing. This is, We've done it. The plot's done. The order's written. The signet ring has already been stamped and sealed. The order has gone out. The Jews are, are cooked. They're dead. And from the vantage point of Esther and Mordecai, this was days that were exceedingly dark and, and exceedingly fearful. Even though Esther was the queen, she's a Jew. That hasn't been revealed yet. 
but it will be impossible for her ultimately to hide it. And surely Mordecai is tempted to anxiety, to bitterness over having not been rewarded by the king for saving his life. Imagine how anxious and fearful Esther must have been. I mean, she hasn't even disclosed to her own husband her ethnic identity. What's going to happen? I mean, they find themselves under this unbreakable, indissoluble decree of destruction from a well-funded, highly orchestrated, highly organized plot to kill them all. Do you think in that moment they were tempted to forget the promises that God has made to his people? Do you think the Jews were tempted to despair? Even Esther, in her high place, do you think, and Mordecai, as, as an official in the kingdom, do you think they were tempted to think, God has forgotten us? Where is God? And, can, and it's not hard for us, I think, if we are, if we will spend the time to do it, to, to, to think about times or circumstances when it seemed to us absolutely har- certain that harm is going to come to us, and, and we have not done anything to deserve that particular harm. Surely it's not difficult for us to look around the the world at large, our culture, our own civil government, and say, what have you forgotten your people? There there are powerful people in high places who are well-funded, well-organized, well-established, who seek to do harm to the church of Jesus Christ. So how does Esther 3 encourage the church today? And I, as I studied the passage this week, Colossians chapter 2 came to mind over and over again. In Colossians 2, verse 13, Paul says, And you, being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having graciously forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He also has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them in him. So here is the the, the firm declaration given to us in the gospel that if you were in Christ, not only has your certificate of debt been canceled, that was nailed to the cross, stamped as paid by Christ. All your sins have been wiped away. But there's even more than that. Christ has triumphed over his enemies. He's put them to open shame. And and, and it's not a coincidence, it's not a coincidence that ultimately Haman's death comes on a tree, on a big stake, the one that he made for for Mordecai. And, And in a cosmically, divinely comical turn of events, the very gallows that Haman built for Mordecai, was the place of his death. And in a similar way, Satan thought he designed the cross. Satan thought this was his plan to get rid of Jesus. And what Satan didn't know by the comically divine turn of events is that that very cross would be the place of Satan's destruction. It would be the place of Satan's rule where he was publicly put to open shame, as God raised his own son from the grave. Jesus goes into the very bowels of hell and preaches this message of victory to those spirits in prison. If you were in Christ, then it's a fact that you were once in a hopeless and dire circumstance 
about which you didn't even realize how bad it was. I didn't realize how bad my misery and slavery and my sinful condition really was. We, too, were under an order of condemnation and death with absolutely no way to escape it. We were born under an order of excommunication, or under an order of execution, I should say. I mean, imagine, here's 11 months between the time of this decree going out and the day the Jews were killed. Those were, there were babies born during that time who were literally born under a death warrant. Every one of us is born in the same condition. Every human being who's ever been born except one is born under that death order. And it's hopeless and helpless. There is no way of escape. But God, providence made it such that God's own son would be born at just the perfect time, in just the perfect place, to give himself as a ransom and as a means of rescue for all who believe in him. So this book, uh, the, the chapter 3 in the book of Esther, which is, is one of the darkest chapters in all of Scripture. I, I mean, this wasn't some sudden attack that came against the Jews. This was, this was a well-orchestrated plot, planned in place, and, and they were given notice for 11 years or 11 months to have to sit under this order of execution knowing their doom is coming. And the hopelessness, the helplessness that must have pervaded them, and yet here God shines himself out of that darkness. They can't see it yet in chapter 3. We, we got a glimpse at the end of chapter 2 of what God was doing, putting this, lighting the fuse of this time bomb that was going to blow up in Haman's hands. It ends up being almost like the, you know, the old Looney Tunes stuff where it's, it's, it's always the, the roadrunner who's lighting the bomb to, to, or the Wiley Coyote for lighting the bomb to blow up the, ro the roadrunner, and it always blows up in the wrong guy's hands. Mordecai thinks, or I mean, uh, Haman thinks that he is lighting the fuse to destroy all of God's people. But he's going to find himself holding the bomb that he has made. He's going to find himself taking the just punishment from God that he intended for Mordecai. So there's, there's a wonderful uh, illustration here in chapter 3 of, of, of how divine providence is at work when we can't see it. And, and how the nature of the conflicts that we see around us, we think that it has to do with ballot boxes and Republicans and Democrats and and corporations and power structures, and we think that's where the real seat of power is in the world, don't we? Don't we kind of get led into believing that? And Esther sort of helps us to repudiate that idea, that even when we don't see, there is a mighty hand, a divine hand, the hand of God, working to preserve his people. He's worked everything out in advance for our preservation. And that just because we don't see his work doesn't mean he's not working. Just because we don't see the true nature of the conflict doesn't mean there's not something much bigger than you and me going on behind the scenes. And just because we don't yet see and taste the victory doesn't mean it isn't already as certain as if it had already happened. So how do we think about the, the book of, of Esther in general, but how do we think about these, these particular events? What was it like? I mean, what would... What would you have thought? Um, put yourself in those shoes. Let's say you're a nine-year-old girl in 
who's a Jewish girl, when this decree comes and the letter comes to your house? What if you're a young man just taking a wife? You're, you're, you're planning your home. You're planning your family. And this decree comes. You don't know anything about Mordecai. You've never heard of him. You don't know anything about Esther. I mean, you've heard maybe some stories about her. She's queen. You've, you've heard that, that. But you may not have even heard it kind of in your Jewish enclave because Esther never let anybody know she was Jewish. So it wasn't like she was the, the ethnic hero of Israel yet. What if you're a young woman who's just given birth to her first child and, and you're, you're thinking about the life ahead and this decree comes and, and you're stuck in that place of, of, of hopelessness? Where does your heart go? Where, where does it rest? And Esther 3 helps us to think about those ways. That there's, there's, we may not be in precisely the same circumstances, but it's not hard to imagine us being in, in positions where others intend for us intend harm to us. There seem to be all kinds of things opposed to us, and and we are tempted, probably in the very same ways that they were, to a despair, a hopelessness, thinking that God has not been faithful, that God has deserted, that God has left them. Esther three helps us to think think differently. Well, it helps us to, to kind of push back against these, these ideas sometimes that if, if we don't act and do certain things at this certain time, we're all doomed. And, and imagine the kind of, of political rallies that could have taken place in Esther chapter 3. We've got to rally. We've got to protest. We've got to organize. Because if we don't, then we're all doomed. Forgetting that, no, it is the hand of God that is at work. It is, the, it is God who's preserving and delivering and plotting and planning. It doesn't mean we don't have responsibilities. I'm not making that argument at all. But sometimes we, we will think that if somehow we fail at a particular point, if we don't have enough people praying, if we don't have enough people organized, if we don't have enough resources, then we're doomed. And Esther 3 helps us. I mean, there's no, no place in the book of Esther does someone pray and call upon the Lord. No, no place in Esther does someone specifically ask for the Lord's guidance or help. And yet God moves. God is always the first mover. We, we tend to think that we are. That we, we do something and then God will respond and, and move on our behalf. That, that Esther, the book of Esther as a whole, helps repudiate that, that idea. Anything else? Any other observations? Matthew.
Yeah, and, and there seem to be a number of uh, governmental entities that, that responded in a similar way when, when a church, for example, said, we're not going to bow down. You, you can't tell us when we can open for worship. You can't tell us whether we can sing or not sing. You, you can't tell us when we can meet and not meet. Only Christ gets to tell us that. And the, the, the government responded in many cases the way that Haman did, with a fury and a rage. You know what? We're going to destroy all of them. We're going to go after all of the churches, after all the Christians, because they're uncooperative. They won't bow down. And so it, it helps us to think that you know, when those things happen, and there's, there's providential working that we don't see, but there's also there's a greater battle going on. This really isn't about the masks after all, is it? It's really not about a shot after all, is it? It's really not about uh, singing or church being open. It's, it's really not about those things. There's something more significant going on. It's part of a greater battle. between, But that battle is, is being raged between a Savior who is already victorious and a foe who is already defeated and been put to open shame. It's easy for us to forget that part, isn't it? Satan is already a defeated foe. Well, let's, let's pray and we'll take a short break before worship. Father, you are so, so kind to us and, and we, we ask that you forgive us when we, we fail to see that. We fail to see you with eyes of faith that you are always at work, that you are always active, that you are always powerful, that your word is as our sure and certain guide that by the power of your spirit you've already given us all the resources that we need to resist sin and temptation you've always you've already given to us if we were in Christ all that we need to be preserved to the end of the age you've already guaranteed a victory for us Lord, will you help us increase our faith that we can cling to those promises and and particularly when days are dark, when the world around us is dark and we, it's as if we can't see what's going on, and those days when it is dark inside of us, and because of our own sin, because of the hardness of our own hearts, we're unable to see ourselves clearly. Lord, help us to look with eyes of faith, to see ourselves, to see the world as we really are, and more than anything, that we can see Christ as the great Savior that he is. We ask this in his name. Amen.